Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Kelly Hoey, CMO of Curio, and tonight's guest panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Pablo. Come on up, Alyssa, Max, Lucas. So I am Kelly Hoey. I'm the uh, Chief Marketing Officer of Curio, a New York City-based startup, uh, working with brands to get them uh, comfortable with tech and innovation in this fractured digital world. And tonight we're going to discuss the future of messaging. And I have three, I want to say, cornerstones of the New York tech community and uh, three people who are been very much from the beginning focused on tech and, and the changes and evolution and very much in the center and interested in what's going on now from everything from ephemeral photo sharing apps uh, to messaging with emoticons to privacy and security. So Alyssa right here beside me, she's the CEO of Glimpse. You were a political theory major at Williams College um, and so even doing political theory, getting into engineering and, and um, coding. And you've uh, co-founded a dating site, amongst other things, already in your career. All right, Glimpse. How, why? Why does, why Glimpse and why now? Glimpse felt very important uh, because we wanted to build easier to use private messaging. Uh, and that's still an important part of our mission, but going forwards, we're about to launch group messaging, and that's really important at this moment when so many people are sharing mostly photos and videos, and the group messaging apps right now are very much text-based. So um, when did you find found Glimpse? Pax Dickinson and I founded Glimpse at South by Southwest 2013 after uh, too many bourbon shots. It seemed like just <laughs> the greatest idea. He was CTO of Business Insider. I was CEO of Makeout Labs, but we were like, no, we need to build the next generation ephemeral photo sharing app. Like, we're going to do this. And we did. I would say maybe that's, you know, all great ideas involve something alcoholic. No, that'll be another panel another time. All right, in the middle. Max, um, who I've had the pleasure of meeting today for the first time after many emails, reading many articles. So you have spent your adult life building scalable popular websites, including OkCupid. Uh, you're now bringing encrypted email to the masses. I want you to tell us how you're doing that, and I want to know what the heck is pretty good privacy. Not really good privacy, just pretty good. Okay. Um, well, thanks, Kelly. Uh, so, um, obviously, the technology behind uh, crypto and, and secure communication has been around at least since the 70s. Um, and just for whatever reason, it's been very hard for people to use. And one of the, the things that people fail to do right away is to, um, to get the right cryptographic keys that are required to speak to people. So, if I want to write you a message, I need to have your key on hand. And so the first question becomes, how do I get your key? And it used to be in the days of pretty good privacy, which is still used to this day, by the way, um, I would have to meet you in, in person and we'd have to transcribe digits. And they were very long, like maybe 40 digit uh, keys. And that would be the only way we can then communicate online. And that seems like a very impractical way to start any sort of um, uh, messaging exchange, let alone 
anything we'd want to do with uh, secure communication. So IT base. So, so, so everything we're doing these days is to avoid meeting in person, to actually have to meet them to exchange keys, exactly. to send encrypted messages. That's seems exactly a bit, right. Bit and, crazy. And not to mention, there are a lot of people you want to communicate with who you've never met and never will meet in person in your life. And, right. um, you know, this goes for like famous journalists or stuff like that. I, I should be able to send a secret message to uh, Glenn Greenwald without actually having met him. So um, I, I think that's the real problem that needs to be solved. And until that problem's solved, anything you do in crypto is, is probably not going to work well. So we're trying to, Try we're really focusing on the foundation here. So how does Keybase work? Um, the way Keybase works is that um, we make it, first of all, easy for people to use the software around generating your own pu um, public key. And so before anyone does any crypto, they need a key that's their own. And then we make it easy for you to advertise your key to lots of other people on your social media outlets. So you'll advertise on Twitter, you'll advertise on GitHub, you'll advertise on your personal website, this is my public key. And then other people who want to find your key can then download it and verify it in such a way where um, if it changes in the future, uh, they'll know. And also, they'll know that if an attacker is pretending to be you, if your worst enemy is pretending to be you, that worst enemy would have had to break into all your accounts in order to do so, which is a much better guarantee than people have nowadays without our service. Cool. Very cool. Lucas, at the end, uh, hacker turned VC. Are supposed to like hiss or something at that point? <laughs> uh, you're a principal at Gotham Ventures. You've been a member of the New York tech community since 1999. You were senior manager for product security at Adobe. Uh, and on your bio, and I told you I was going to do this, it says that you're interested in tech that is making a dent in the universe. So what tech is making a dent in the universe for you right now? Uh, that's an interesting question, actually. So I'm really interested in the blockchain right now. So Bitcoin, for those of you who don't know, it runs on the blockchain. And that's the first use of the blockchain, but there's a bunch of other things you can do now that you kind of have an open, verifiable record. And so there's a bunch of companies that are using the blockchain for other things, like legal documents or a replacement for GitHub. And so I think that's a fascinating place to be playing. I mean, so my past life as a lawyer, as soon as you say legal documents, I'm like, ready to snore, but a replacement for GitHub? A replacement for GitHub. So it's a distributed system where you can see all the updates that have been made. And so instead of having a centralized thing like GitHub, right? Git, Git itself is decentralized, but GitHub is a central place for your, your code. Uh, you can put your code in the blockchain and it's there forever and verifiable. Wow. Uh, Lucas, it's, it seems to me that the Bitcoin developers are a little bit hostile to using Bitcoin for anything, but money transactions. I mean, there's not much data you could play around with, only 20 bytes per, yep. per transaction. Um, and they don't seem to want it to be used in different ways. So what do you think is going to happen with that? Well, so you don't actually have to use the Bitcoin blockchain, right? The technology is the blockchain. So you don't have to use Bitcoin's blockchain. You can make your own. You could have GitHub blockchain. So I'm not too terribly worried about that. I do think the idea of you know, an open record system uh, is a pretty interesting place to play. It's Got an it. interesting, interesting trend. Interesting trend. So, um, messaging apps, there's a uh, business insider looked at this, messaging apps are on track to overtake social networks. Let's talk about that trend. And we've seen uh, Yelp recently installing uh, the ability to text messages within the platform to businesses. Um, Alyssa, what, what do you think is behind this trend of sending you know, I'm going to say you can start with ephemeral or you can move up to there, but what is this trend that this is the way we live and this is how we communicate? 
People really want to share with each other, uh, and that's been, uh, for a very long time now, that's been true. And they want to share with their close friends and with the intended recipients. What young people are discovering is that there's too much drama when you post on Facebook, that social networks just aren't the best way to share with a select group of people. And we're starting to see backlash as people post things and see unintended consequences. So, you know, a woman would post something snide about her job on Facebook and then discover that she's fired. Uh, so the consequences for posting on social uh, are, are it, it's unappealing for people who just want to share something and be whimsical and be casual. When you're using a messaging app, you know, you can say anything and uh, it's just for your friends, it's not for the world. I say, Max, thoughts when we were talking in the back about, you know, you said, as I think you said, you know, why wouldn't I just post it on, you know, like Facebook? But your yeah, thoughts I'm on I'm actually, this? I'm a, a bad target user for messaging apps. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm a little bit too old for it now. But, but, but I've heard that, um, and, and Alyssa, you know more than I do. I mean, ha, has actually, like, things like the way people, like, court each other, has it changed along with the, te the technology? I, I mean... I, when I was in high school, and, and I'd have to pick up a phone, which obviously is a stupid thing to do nowadays. And so um, it, it's like the whole social fabric changing around the, the text messaging uh, or, the, or the, the various texting services or messaging yeah, services. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to talk about courtship. You know, obviously you helped build OkCupid, and uh, courtship now seems to be much more uh, quick. You know, people are using Tinder uh, to meet someone quickly and then they go to kick or to text message uh, or they meet up. Uh, so everything seems to be speeding up these days and becoming more bite-sized, including courtship. So my only thought is that in some ways the move from OkCupid, okay which had a kind of an intermediary aspect, to Tinder where you actually have to go meet someone face-to-face -face, is really a good move, right? Because online dating, for all the good parts, didn't really work that well until you met the person. All the intermediary steps were kind of just bad foreplay, in my opinion. Except, you know, Tinder was awesome in the early days when it was just early adopters. Like, in the early days, Tinder looked like yeah, my Yeah, Facebook was cool, too, in the, in the early days. I knew the band before they became cool. Well, but Tinder is not... Uh, Tinder has grown too big... Uh, for its design. You know, Tinder doesn't have an algorithm the way OkCupid did. Uh, so you and I once had a very interesting conversation about how OkCupid got like exponentially better after it had, what, 100,000 users? For yeah. sure, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a classic network effect where the more daters, the, the better your experience is, for sure. Right, and that's because you had a way of filtering out matches. Tinder will show me anyone else who is nearby, and they also disregard my age preferences, so they show me like anyone from 19 to 50 who's nearby. And I just don't have the patience for that, and there isn't any other real matching criteria. Uh, so I think Tinder's interesting because they're getting worse and worse as they move beyond their like very attractive early adopter market into just like So, may so maybe there's together. like some apps and messaging apps that just should stay with certain numbers, but I mean, Part of this is like, what is these, these, I want to say the profiles and the behaviors that we've had behind the closed doors of early networking sites, like dating sites, where we haven't wanted to post who we are 
publicly or what we're looking for publicly and what that is some of that behavior now um, and, and mannerisms and all the rest of it. Is that, a, is that I want to say, more or less influencing other sites which are not initially for that purpose in terms of dating? I, I think that could be. I mean, one thing we always found at OkCupid is that people wanted to keep their dating profile separate from their Facebook profile. Um, and the more they spent on saying what they do on a Friday night and the six things they couldn't do without, the more time they spend actually honestly filling that out, the less they wanted their coworkers to see it. So um, obviously Tinder doesn't have that problem because there aren't really any, any profiles, um, or at least there weren't the last time I looked. Um, but, uh, and sorry, I'm forgetting the, the original question, but... Um, well, just in terms of thinking of, in terms of different sites for different purposes, but also okay. it just changes the communication pattern. And this is, you know, can we have multiple personalities or maybe this is just now an evolution of how we communicate? Oh, yeah, I, I think absolutely. I think people have different persona based upon which site they're using, for, for sure. And I, I think that's what makes us so interesting, that some people who are very shy in life can, you know, maybe be a little bit less shy when it comes to, you know interacting online, which for some people might be great. Um, Lucas, I want to jump down to you. Um, can we actually keep messages safe from prying eyes? Uh, it depends on your, who you think of the prying eyes. If it's the NSA, you're probably screwed. <laughs> right? If it's your boss or your coworkers, yeah, sure, no problem. Right. Um, the guys who develop PGP, pretty good privacy, which is, is what uh, David's using, have tools out there that you know, between you and I, no one, you know, the, the phone company won't know and they won't be able to read it. But again, once you get an attacker who has means and time, you're pretty much host. Wait, what's your thoughts, Alyssa, on, you know, how you can, how you can keep messages safe from prying eyes? And, and Max, yeah, jump, we can, you can jump down the line, keep going. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I, I didn't, well, I, I think, yeah, the, Lucas, you, you hit the nail on the head. The question is who, who you're protecting your, yourself from. And you know, as far as we know, the crypto and PGP, which at this point is about, I think, 20 years old, 30 years old, let's say 20. Um, I don't think the NSA can break it. I, I think the the most recent assessments as to what they can do does not include um, being able to to read a PGP encrypted email sent through a public channel. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is that most people don't don't know how to use PGP properly, and so the chances of your of your conversation leaking a different way, not because of crypto broke, but because someone hit reply and forgot to encrypt on the reply, that's like probably where people get into a lot of trouble. Um, so I, I would agree. I, I mean, I'm not like a super, super privacy nut where I'm like every last thing I, I, I do in the world has to be private as far as I'm concerned. In fact, I often assume the opposite that everything I am, I will ever said is, is more or less going to be seen by anyone who, who really wants to see it unless I go through great lengths to, to avoid it. Um, I think that's the trade-off we've made to right. get to this point in life. I think privacy is really interesting. What I'm seeing in building tools that are for like a lot of regular people is that high schoolers and teenagers and millennials really want privacy from their teachers and their parents. Authority, uh, okay. Which, you know, I think back to when I was that age, like, oh yeah, you know, the privacy that you want at different stages of your life is different. So like privacy is very relative. Uh, and I, I'd agree um, that you can generally protect yourself from just about anyone. Like PGP works, cryptography works, encryption works, but you have to take the time and actually use those tools. And if the government or like very intelligent third parties really want you, you know, they can get directly to your phone or uh, certain like 
notable personalities who are under surveillance by the government find that their houses get broken into. Like, if you find that you're one of those people, then it's very hard to actually have complete privacy. But that's such an outlier. Like, for most of us, we can experience complete privacy, but we need to make choices, right? Like, Facebook scans your messages. You have to make the choice to not send a very, very private message through Facebook if you don't want it to be scanned and read. I'm going to say, because we have sort of have this split personality where we have this surveillance anxiety, but we're out there kind of shedding our data all the time because we don't check settings and we do things. This is sort of this crazy split personality. Uh, here, here at Keybase, um, obviously people love to think about secrecy a lot, and that's what um, is the most accessible idea about what encryption provides. But we're also really concerned a lot about uh, um, authentic communication. And so if you think about it, it's very rare in your day-to-day -day life that you actually need to hide a secret from someone. But it's maybe 10 times a day you authenticate yourself to your car, to your house, to your email provider. Um, this is something everyone's really used to. And so we think that's the real, that's the interesting thing to nail. Because if, if you can kind of get that right, then you could build secrecy on top of it. And so it's like a big education process to get people to, to think about the ways that they can prove who they are and have other people accept that proof um, to build uh, more interesting apps on top of it. But if we really care about privacy, we're going to have to do that first and, and then kind of build the privacy layers on top of it. I think that's interesting. Uh, I like the idea of making it easier for people to authenticate themselves online because that's the direction that things are going in. And the less that I have to like show a physical thing, like my driver's license, to prove who I am, you know, that's, that becomes very interesting. Right, and, and the way authentication usually works now is with a trusted third party like a Facebook or a Google, and that doesn't make a lot of people happy. I mean, Google shouldn't own the ability to authenticate yourself. You should own that ability yourself. So it, oh, now like, you're talking crazy talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really crazy. All right, you mentioned the S word secret, which of course brings up things of, I want to say, temporary consequence-free messaging. We can probably put glimpse in that category, secret, yik-yak, whisper, confide. I'm looking down at the end at you, Lucas. Like, if but, apps but are, I want to get to you in a second. You can, you can talk about this. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going I'm, I'm, no, no, you're, all right, you, all right, you're not in that yeah, category. Yeah, it's worth just refuting <laughs> that. Like, refuting. I, I, I don't think of Glimpse as a consequence-free messaging app because we're ephemeral, but we're not anonymous. Okay. And so with Glimpse, in most cases, you send messages to people you know, and so it's about authenticity and intimacy and sharing as opposed to apps like Secret or Whisper, okay. which are anonymous. Thank you for correcting that Sorry. one. Is, yes, no, I'm glad you did that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but back to, back to those other ones, that other category. Um, and I forget the name. There was a UK app I was reading about today that they said their business model is not about collecting or mining data. So, Lucas, I'm looking down at you with some of these technologies... How do you assess them as a VC? Like, you know, are, are you hoping, you know, someone buys them for billions of dollars because it's a question of user acquisition and it's cheaper than getting those next, you know, three billion people on it or whatever? Well, so the way I, so the way I view most of these consumer apps, I, I'm not a big fan of them because I can't tell who's going to win ahead of time. Right, because it's never a technology thing. It's a network effect piece, and it's usually not the best thing wins. It's usually something weird, right? It's like, 
Who would have guessed Instagram? I'm just gonna use that as an example. There were 400 photo sharing apps, and that's the one that took off. And so you can't guess before you see traction, at which point you're just paying up for traction. Uh, and really the way you sell out in those, those cases is you, you start to disrupt a big competitor like Facebook, and they buy you out to defend their territory, right? Because if you look at, um, at WhatsApp, they've made no money really, right? It's free for the first year, it's a dollar the next year, but they've never had a next year, right? They've never charged <laughs> anybody. So they've got 400... They don't have to worry about next year anymore. Right. Well, now they don't, but they had 480 million active users that theoretically they could have charged, but how many of those people would have immediately dropped and moved to kick the second they did? So it becomes a problem of commerce. How do you, how do you monetize your users? If you're not charging the user, then the user is the product, right? right. Uh, so we view that. You're starting to see um, there's, a, there's a Chinese messaging app uh, I think it's called WhatApp, uh, that gets about $7 a user, actually, but they're selling things. It's commerce, right? right? They're selling stickers. They're selling uh, services. You can get a taxi through there. Um, a fascinating fact is m mobile in China is bigger than the U.S. That, that's obvious, right? More people. But 50% of Internet users have made a, uh, like an online phone payment in China, where it's only 20% in the U.S. So they're way ahead of us in that area. Right. And that's where I think things will go. So I, when I'm looking at new apps, that's the way I'd look at it is how can they charge? Because right. if they can't charge, if it's... If it's there's not like, yeah, there's not a marketplace within right. there so that you, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, so this trend as well, that um, the use of icons and emoji and all the rest of it within an, an app to communicate. Of course, you know, if you want a certain one, you're going to buy it or a brand will buy it or whatever. Um, so you can see that kind of marketplace within there if they're not saving and collecting the data. You know, it's often the case that security and the ability to monetize users are at odds with each other. And so if I were to, you know, the, the more a company is trying to mine your email for, for terms or whatever, the less secure your communication through that channel is going to be. And moreover, in, in the security community, there, there's a distrust of people who have blatantly kind of commercial um, incentives because they worry that eventually the the company might change its tune and in, 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 in order to appease investors or whoever's going to buy them or whatnot. And so it, security conscious people tend to be very paranoid and they're paranoid about people's business uh, motivations a lot too. So it's a, it's a tough business to, to monetize properly. Wait, so how are you going to? Um, right now, well, we have no plans whatsoever to make any money on this thing, as far as we can tell. Uh, this, is, this, is your, this is your community service? Your, your, I, I think yeah. so. And I, I think, you know, PGP was that way for a while, too. They didn't really make any money. Um, and, and they uh, didn't on the sale, although yeah. I think you will, because well, you and Chris are amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Alyssa. I, um, I, I don't think we have any intention to sell this thing either because um, were a big company to buy it, it would lose its, the independence is what makes it a useful tool. Um, I think the, and GitHub's model is a pretty good model. If you, know, you want to have a public uh, repository, it's obviously that contributes to the community and everyone benefits. If you want to have a private uh, uh, repository that subtracts from the community and you realize you need to pay up for it. And so um, there's a, maybe a model like that where businesses can pay for services and, and individuals wouldn't. That, that is going to be acceptable. That is acceptable to users. But it, it's something to really keep, keep in mind, I think, when trying to build a security focused app that... Uh, but, I mean, as consumers, and consumers of... I mean, here you are, I've got three people who are creators of technology, but as also as consumers of technology, if we want that security, if we want to own our data, shouldn't we be paying for these things? 
The problem is that so few people want to pay for, for privacy or security, right? If you go to the grocery store, they give you like 1% for them to be able to track you forever on that little card. And people give that up all day long, right? Oh, I get a dollar off a candy a bar. Example. I will give up all my personal data forever. <laughs> is that example. what we're doing with loyalty programs? Yes. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> a great example. Uh, it was Phil Zimmerman, who uh, was one of the founders of PGP, who uh, said that he likes to swap his loyalty program cards with other people in line. So it's at least like faking out the data. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, yeah you need a good sense of humor in this industry. It's true. Yeah, Richard Stallman used to do that with his Charlie cards in Boston. He'd, every, every week, he'd send out an email to MIT saying, who wants to swap their Charlie card with me? Because he was worried that the transit authority was tracking where he went. <laughs> and like, when, when they finally got rid of tokens, this was the first thing on his mind. Well, and it turned out are. he probably was right, yeah. At the time, we all thought maybe it's a little bit wacky, but you know, I, think, I think history has vindicated him in it, that kind of it, attitude. In, in terms of like... Yeah, I would say that, that you talk about Bitcoin earlier, that old-fashioned thing called cash becomes, you know, if you're really paranoid. <laughs> well, cash is much better than Bitcoin if you want to preserve your anonymity, for sure, because uh, Bitcoin is very traceable. And in fact, it's, it's better for law enforcement than, than cash. Oh, there there are should... tools for anonymizing Bitcoin, but it's a bunch of work that most people get wrong. They... And it's dangerous and expensive, too, right? The mix sense, yeah. Anything that I haven't touched on that, you know, the audience may ask us questions, but is there anything in terms of this conversation that we should be talking about before we go to questions that we haven't touched on? I mean, there's probably a million things, but... In the end, there's going to be one platform for, uh, for messaging, and it's going to be called Facebook. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be called Facebook. That's my, that's my provocative statement. I think that might be right, actually. I could see Facebook buying like all the things, except you know, Max and Chris will be in a corner authenticating everyone. Um, <laughs> That's a great future. I love it. Yeah. Okay. I'm all for this. No, so, so as long as Facebook keeps buying, having making money, they can they can buy things. They think that's that's the way it's going to go. And it's actually Wait. interesting watching the evolution of that company's thinking on security from everything being open, um, you know, maybe the aging of the founder says someone much older than him with, well, well, you know, tongue-in-cheek laughter. When they, were, when they were growing, I mean, if everyone's privacy settings are clamped down the way they are now, Facebook never would have taken off, but back then it was crucial to them getting to where they are. Now where they are, they're, you know, they're happy to, to you know, give people what they want, which is more privacy, or, or so they claim. So That's, they claim. Uh, Thank you. I actually think that's very interesting about Facebook. Facebook uh, really follows public trends, at least in terms of how they portray themselves. I've been saying for a while now that Zuck is very bullish on privacy and people really laughed at me, but uh, they recently came out with an anonymous uh, Facebook login and they're redoing their privacy settings. You know, Zuck wants to give the people what they want, uh, which at least, you know, is something in terms of being responsive, even if it's not like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hi. Um, I had a question, actually. I, Max, uh, you mentioned about PGP. How do you actually set up the right settings to make sure that your information is not being is disclosed? Well, well that's, that's a great question. Um, if you were to install PGP on your Macintosh, there's actually a great software package called uh, GPG Tools now, which is, if you use mail.app, I would recommend it. It's actually great. However, it's still a little bit confusing. Um, it gives you a lot, of uh, a lot of prompts that you might not care about. Um, there's probably a good guide online as, as to how to do it. So now once you've installed PG GPG tools on your Mac, you can encrypt all your mail that you sent through mail.app almost um, 
with a click, which is great. Now you're you're going to be in charge of keeping your secret key secret. That's going to be that's going to be a, you know that's the real challenge because if someone you know gets access to your hard drive or whatever, then they could steal your secret key and then they can decrypt all your messages. So um, that's one of the real challenges that's inherent in any sort of public key uh, system. Uh, so so that's one thing. At Keybase, we have a, a pretty intuitive system to step you through it that doesn't uh, force you to make any decisions at all. It just gives you really good defaults, and it, I think that's the right way to handle this stuff. To, I mean, if you want to attract a larger audience, and so we're we're thinking a lot about that, how to make it easy. Um, and so I, I could maybe plug our system a little bit too. But uh, do you have any more uh, other questions? I don't know if I if I answered it properly. Okay, but and the other thing you're going to have to do in, with PGP is also find people to communicate with. That's going to be the, the biggest problem. And so that's why you should use our system, or you should go back to the old way of just um, exchanging business cards with people, which is uh, not a great way to do it, but that's, uh, that's what the way traditionally you're supposed to do it. I'm suspecting the best place to find you three is on Twitter, like it is to find me. Your Twitter handle, Alyssa, is? Elizabeth, E-L-I-S-S-A. Uh, I'm Max Taco at Twitter, M-A-X-T-A-C-O. Lucas Nelson. I won't spell it. <laughs> we should be able to find, find it that way. All right, question in the back row. Yes, I recently read an article about the digital representation of people who have passed away and that because we have an increasingly digitized lives from the way we interact with the internet to uh, the centralization of electronic health records, we'll have enough data about people that we could recreate them in virtual avatars and have them even exist beyond death. And it's an article I just read. And I'm wondering what would be the concerns you might theorize or posit for those who have virtual representations of themselves beyond you know, their existing lives? It's a very futuristic question, but I'm curious. That's creepy and gross. I know, <laughs> but it was an interesting article. Well, well we actually had a conversation today. Um, <laughs> so, I, so he's got an interesting think, great company this, that he's not going to sell, but it's creepy and gross. Okay, no, no, sorry. One anyway. of the scariest things to think about when you tweet is that Elon Musk actually just went on the record saying that he's worried about a Terminator-like scenario in which uh, the machines take over. And if they do, they're going to be reading all of our tweets, and they're going to be understanding very deeply our personalities. And then why do we want to tell the computers who are going to run the world in 10 years um, about ourselves? And that's, that's basically what we should think about when we tweet. So, Hi. On the uh, note of the uh, you know data collection and the, all that kind of stuff, I was wondering uh, the autonomous you know features of um, you know the cars and the um, you know how we're, the intelligent uh, use of GPS and that kind of thing to forecast things of interest and you know, good or bad is it going to be helpful before it gets scary or is it just going to get pretty scary pretty quick? So self-driving cars are actually really fascinating because the way we currently drive leaves 90% of the roadway unused, right? At any given time, at the most efficient we are, we're using 10%. And if you give that over to computers, you can do a lot better. So self-driving cars, I think, are gonna be great. Uh, less accidents, you'll get places quicker, all sorts of good things. Uh, so I'm not terribly worried about that one. Yeah, I think self-driving cars are gonna be an awesome change for everyone. Um, I guess in the city it's not the case, but everywhere else outside the city, people spend their times in their cars driving to, to get things, you know, and that's so stupid. And that's like, eventually it's all gonna come to you for basically no cost whatsoever, because there'll be a car, it's gonna drop it off, like a Amazon locker on wheels type of thing. So 
um, that also is going to get people off the road because they don't need to do that. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's going to totally change the world and people. It, it, it's going to change where people live. It's going to change everything about people's lives. And in a way, I, that's probably going to be for the better, or else it, it won't happen if it's not for the better. And on that note, I would like to thank Pablo and the Soho's team here in uh, Apple. So thank you so much. Thank you, Apple, and thank you, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you all.